the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Anarchism and rhetoric might at first appear to be antithetical subjects. An interest in the first usually arises from a sense that action is needed, and now. The second is, in popular parlance, the realm of politicians and bystanders. But as any student of anarchism can tell you, there is a lot of rhetoric in anarchism. One reason is the antiquity of anarchism, which appears in the West in the ancient Greek word anarchia, meaning without a ruler. Then there's religiously based anarchism, which has roots in the Bible, Other anarchist ideas come from Judaism, Asian religions, medieval Italy, the Reformation, and the French Revolution. So, of course, there's a lot of rhetoric in and about anarchism. But what does that mean? And is there a way past it? Or is this opposition between anarchism and rhetoric a false one? I recently published the biography of Ammon Hennessy a famous Christian anarchist who tried out everything from socialist planned communities to Hopi Pueblos to the Catholic worker movement. Writing his life was a pleasure, but writing a conclusion for it was difficult because just before his death, he wrote The One Man Revolution in America, his personal history of anarchism in the U.S., It's his most popular book and a natural point of summation for a biography like mine. My problem was that in it, he elevated some sketchy characters over Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, and Thoreau. And how was I to explain this? Hennessy, for those who may not know him, joined the IWW at 15 served 18 months in prison for counseling draft resistance during World War I, refused to ever pay any taxes, served time in prison again for protesting against nuclear missiles, was committed to voluntary poverty and lived it, helping vulnerable members of society. He was a vegetarian before it became an easily available choice. People who knew him and who I interviewed in writing the biography, are still galvanized by his example. He was a major inspiration for Vietnam-era protesters. He started the famous Joe Hill Houses for the Homeless in Salt Lake City. But despite this life of action, he was always writing, always talking. He was deeply involved in rhetoric. This final book of his starts with his American forerunners, such as Thomas Jefferson, Thoreau, and the Quaker John Woolman. And then later it marches on stage such heroes as Sacco and Vanzetti, Alexander Berkman, and Dorothy Day. 
The book presumably represented the mature state of Hennessy's anarchist theory. This personal canon was explicable for two-thirds of the book, but then it veered from icons like Thoreau to figures such as Malcolm X and the Mormon patriarch John Taylor. And it also heaped praise on Alexander Berkman while entirely dismissing Dorothy Day, who had been Hennessy's patron. These moves were ideologically erratic and personally ungracious, frankly. How does a pacifist reconcile his lifelong commitments, testified to by all who knew him, to the violent strategies of Berkman, who attempted to murder businessman Henry Clay Frick? I got my first clue from Hennessy's treatment of Thomas Paine, who was neither Christian nor pacifist, but whose engagement with both worldviews almost reconciled them. And Hennessy worked very hard to justify Paine in his book. Paine was just the appealing, stubborn outsider that Hennessy conceived himself to be. And he was a model rhetor or speaker in the mode that we commonly call speaking truth to power. The technical term for this is parisia, which I will discuss in a minute. Hennessy does not want to see Paine equivocate, so he reads him deeply but narrowly. His reading is not that of a distanced scholar, but of an engaged activist. He searches for a lifelong consistency in Paine's ideals that would harmonize with his, Hennessy's, own version of a minimal state. And he finds it in Paine's little-known book, Agrarian Justice. This book was not quite anarchism, but rather an openness, even to taxes, even to European-style socialism, both of which contradict Hennessy's own received notions. Thus, Hennessy inserts a caveat, and suggesting that socialism might be good enough for Europe, but does not suit the American situation. So here is Paine in the Hennessy archive, but as a kind of open text to be interpreted in the context of Hennessy's own rhetoric. This notion of the open text is important to the engagement of anarchism with rhetoric, a saying that, well, I can read this in my own way. Now I'm going to get French, stay with me. Like Hennessy, Michel Foucault was interested by fearless speech. In his lectures at Berkeley in 1983, Foucault set out not to deal with the problem of truth, but with the problem of the truth teller or of truth telling as an activity, end quote. For Foucault, fearless speech or parisia means telling the truth even at a personal risk and as a kind of moral subjectivity. It's the way in which we understand ourselves as moral beings. And Foucault was, especially later in his life, also a believer in insurrection. As he says in an interview, if I don't say what needs to be done, it isn't because I believe there is nothing to be done. 
On the contrary, I think there are a thousand things that can be done, invented, contrived by those who, recognizing the relations of power in which they are involved, have decided to resist or escape them. From that viewpoint, all my research rests on a postulate of absolute optimism. I don't construct my analyses in order to say, this is the way things are, you are trapped. I say these things only in so far as I believe it enables us to transform them. Everything I do is done with the conviction that it may be of use. As in Hennessy's case, Foucault's fearless speech can be placed in the context of a sustained lived practice in which he, like Hennessy, sought precedence for his deepest feelings. The place to begin reading Hennessy, I discovered, was at the end of his book in a section titled Introspection, where Hennessy wrote of his own motivation. While writing this book one morning, I happened to look into the mirror on the wall. While I had been in solitary in prison, there had been no mirror. Yet in my homelessness, loneliness, and silence, I had at times seemed to come out of myself and to look at myself from a distance. Now, this morning, the same thing was happening as I dissected one of the people of whom I was writing in the same come-out attitude. I looked at myself and commenced a sort of devil's advocate process. Am I a pacifist because I never liked shooting or hunting? Am I an anarchist because I did not want to come out second best in political strife? Am I a vegetarian because I am squeamish about blood and not out of love of animals? Do I refuse to pay taxes because I just want to be different? For Hennessy, like Foucault, Parisia means telling the truth even at a personal risk. And later in the lectures, Foucault defines it as a source of our personal moral subjectivity or the way in which we lead our moral lives and understand ourselves as moral beings. Insurrectionists have taken up what Foucault calls a specific relationship to the self. You risk death to tell the truth instead of reposing in the security of a life where truth goes unspoken. Foucault's definition of Parisia is useful to illuminate Hennessy. He writes that in Parisia, the speaker uses his freedom and chooses frankness instead of persuasion. Chooses frankness instead of persuasion. I want to underline that. Truth instead of falsehood or silence. The risk of death instead of life and security, criticism instead of flattery, and moral duty instead of self-interest and moral apathy. Now, this view is contrary to the common use of the word rhetoric, and it means that rhetoric and its flourishes should not conceal the speaker's meaning. By the time of the Epicureans, writes Foucault, Parisia's affinity with care of oneself had developed to the point where Parisia itself was primarily regarded as a technique of spiritual guidance for the education of the soul. 
For Foucault, this can be seen in his final three lecture courses. Care of the self was related to knowing oneself and to speaking the truth. So with respect to Hennessy's final work, I ended up writing, somewhat counterintuitively, that his life and work were united not by an internal consistency, but by the boldness of his transformations and the consistent response he drew from readers and especially auditors. Before he came to New York City, Hennessy had endlessly repeated that an anarchist does not need a government to make him behave. For 50 years, the same slogans issued from his mouth. And I interviewed several contemporaries who testified to the repetitiveness of his performance. His refusals had left him rather like Herman Melville's character Bartleby the Scrivener. Bartleby is the perfect embodiment of potentiality, but not action. Someone who rejects corruption, but who also rejects rhetoric. This relation of potentiality to actuality, this revaluation of messianic activity, cast Hennessy's choices in his final book in a different light for me. It then made sense to me that Hennessy never lived for long in planned communities. After his Thoreau-like spells in New Mexico and Arizona, he had learned that his talent was on street corners, engaging the public, the unplanned community of the Catholic worker in New York City was one great Greek agora for him. There he cast himself as the all-occasions speaker, preaching on street corners from Wall Street to the Bronx. He sometimes hit four locations on one day, then gave an evening lecture. And he wrote columns for the Catholic Worker newspaper weekly. But he gave each passerby, each listener, each reader, his full attention. He was totally, completely present. Mary Lathrop, in my interview with her, said, he walked into college classrooms already talking, picking out people and addressing questions to them as he came down the aisle, and they listened. The evidence that he made the right decision to move to New York City and the Catholic worker was his increasing stature in the 1960s. Karl Meyer has written, Ammon had a tremendous influence. If you're going to talk about the Vietnam War protests and the Catholic worker movement, you're going to talk to people who were deeply influenced by Ammon because Ammon threw up a radical challenge. He had gone to, war, to jail to protest a war. Ammon was thus a throwback in terms of rhetoric. St. Paul speaks about life in the end times, of living in denial of now for the sake of a messianic future. This requires a stance of indifference to the present and allows people to access the potentiality of their life. This kind of power makes turning the other cheek into an act of defiance that renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance in relationships. By turning the cheek, the inferior 
is saying, I am a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God, and I won't take it anymore. The affective registers of this stance invite close engagement and communication. This was, in fact, Hennessy's reading of his central text, the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote about several situations in which he had turned the other cheek, not defending himself against physical attacks. And that, too, got to seem repetitious. But it raised another question for me. To what degree is lived life a valid test of a corpus reconsidered? That's a kind of bookish question, I know. But for me, how to use his life without falling into the habit of unmasking, of seeking to expose inconsistencies and contradictions. Whatever I may have believed about Hennessy's self-infatuations, he certainly believed in these points that he made. And as his friends told me, he was forceful about letting them know that he knew and they did not. As Robert Steed, one of his oldest surviving associates, said to me in an interview, Hennessy let you know that he was Ammon Hennessy and you were a pipsqueak. As Jacques Derrida writes, everything in this culture that acts, thinks, and speaks with intention, everything that does something, especially with words, in the performative mode, must be signed implicitly or explicitly by a responsible je, that's the French first-person pronoun. Forgive me if I pursue again the French a moment. What Derrida calls the tradition of ultimate solitude shows us that love and friendship are born in the experience of this unspeakable self-taste. Self-taste is an unshareable experience that is nevertheless shared. Self-taste. What a strange word or concept. Derrida borrows the notion of self-taste from Gerald Manley Hopkins, a poet deeply engaged in religious reflection. Hennessy lacked this kind of vocabulary, but self-taste is what he was about. It's what that moment of looking into the mirror invoked for him. Rhetoric did not mute Hennessy's authority of experience. Weirdly, all of this connects back to Derrida in his final seminar, where he is reflecting on Robinson Crusoe as a rhythmic series of attempts to learn how to pray properly, authentically. Authenticity is not tied to truth or falsity, but to the conditions of performativity, according to Derrida. Derrida asks whether one can address oneself to someone, or indeed to any living thing at all, or even something not living, without some kind of implicit prayer-like thing coming to bend to inflect the discourse, or even a simple silent look, which, addressing itself to the other, cannot fail to ask him or her, listen to me, please, je t'en prie. Uh, taking apart the French phrase here, listen, I pray you. 
This reiterated performativity that Derrida invokes has a parallel in the Hennessy archive as well. Those among Hennessy's acquaintances who remarked that they, yes, they had heard it before in his street corner speeches and even in his prayers, they missed the point, the context, the context in which Hennessy uttered his anarchist creeds and screeds was ever new, sometimes before bankers and stockbrokers, sometimes to students, sometimes even to nuns. J. Hillis Miller, following up on Derrida, stresses that this yes, this je t'en prie, I must say yes to a performative demand issued initially by the holy other. My yes is a countersigning or the co-performative validating of a performative command that comes from outside me. Now, Hennessy had had a prison conversion that was his originary performative. He responded to that demand with what we can call the pray-tell, the jeton-prie. He was, in effect, always praying out loud to the other. Life for him was a process of learning how to pray, how to arrive at the fullness of direct action. There were certain voices that Hennessy responded to throughout his whole life, even though their countersignings were flawed, these figures in his book. And his responses to them were meant to keep himself in connection to an unknowable higher power, which he called variously his celestial bulldozer or the blue flame. Hennessy's sense of prayer was not calling for help from the depths of panic or terror. Such prayer, as Derrida says, is mechanical and auto-effective. Hennessy rather wanted to activate someone in Derrida's sense of, I pray you, look at me looking at you, please. Turn toward me. Turn your attention toward what I'm saying or doing to you. Be present to what is coming from me. One always prays to the other, writes Derrida, to be present in one's own presence. Hennessy thus intends to invoke this authenticity in the other in response to his own authenticity. And those thus awakened on New York street corners stayed to talk, to argue with him, sometimes returning with him to the Catholic worker house. This was prayer too. This was rhetoric. This was Parisia. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.